This talk was given by Shyla Catherine. For more information and a schedule of her events, visit the Insight Meditation South Bay website at www.imsb.org. For information about online programs, visit the Bodhi Courses website at www.bodhicourses.org. Bodhi is spelled B-O-D-H-I. So we've already been talking about the Four Noble Truths over the past several weeks. We've had teachings on the First Noble Truth. Does anybody remember what that was about? Suffering, yes. Thank you, Dave, yes. Okay, so, and the Second Noble Truth. What's the essence of the Second Noble Truth? The causes of suffering, yes. And what is the primary cause of suffering? Craving. Craving. Okay, good, good. And the third noble truth. What's the third noble truth? Freedom from suffering. Yes, the end of suffering. Okay, and what's the essence of ending suffering? Let go. Yeah, and you can, yeah. <laughs> Let go of that craving that was causing the second noble truth. Okay, so we just had a quiz and you passed. Great. So with this week... We're at the fourth noble truth. And the fourth noble truth is the way to the ending of suffering. And it's the details of the fourth noble truth, the way to the ending of suffering, is the practice of the eightfold path. You all now should have two sheets, a description of the eightfold path in its detail. And you'll find this chart, along with many other Buddhist list charts on the IMSB website, actually. In the discourse in the Middle Link Discourses, number 107, the Buddha is asked, why have some people reached Nibbana and others have not? And basically, the Buddha says, well, there's a road, and it goes to Rajgir, and We know that road goes to Rajgir, but it's not enough for somebody to ask directions and to say, where does this road go? Oh, it goes to Rajgir. Okay, I could say San Francisco or Santa Cruz. Somebody actually not only has to know where that road goes, they have to travel it. They have to walk the path themselves. So the Buddha says that he teaches the path, he teaches the way, he shows the path. And the way that he showed, then, he goes on to explain, and what is that path, what is that way? That way is the Noble Eightfold Path, which includes right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. In Pali, each of these terms, like they have the term sama, which is the term for right in it, And sama is usually translated as right. Some people like to say wise, but it doesn't really mean wise. There are other words that mean wise. Sama has this quality of, this implication of the fulfillment of, or the coming together of. It's a sense of collectedness within that, a completeness within that. And it's used in contrast to a term called mitcha, wrong. There can be wrong livelihood. There can be wrong speech. There can be wrong effort. But wrong, mitcha, in this sense, 
is not necessarily evil. It's simply that it doesn't lead to awakening. It doesn't go where the path leads. So the Noble Eightfold Path gives us, it articulates the details of the Fourth Noble Truth. But it's not only the way to realize enlightenment, it also describes the path that one cultivates of uprightness, of an integration of action, of intention, of body, of mind, of an integrated and collected way of living, which could be described as a noble life built upon the realization of the first Eightfold Path Factor, which is right view. Now we have the fourth noble truth coming after the third noble truth. There are lots of ways of seeing this sequence of four, but we might wonder when it comes after, what does one do after one realizes the third noble truth? Letting go, release, realization of the end of suffering, Nibbana, then what? You have a profound realization. You have an enlightenment experience. You get, really get the third noble truth. You're not going to then wither away and die just because you let go, just because you really ended the causes of suffering. You don't disappear because you've become awakened or enlightened or experienced emptiness or had insight into not-self. That's not the spiritual retirement mode. Instead, once we've realized the third noble truth, we continue to cultivate the path. We cultivate what can be cultivated and we practice what can be practiced. So right view, the realization of the truth of things, might be considered to be the beginning of the path of practice, but also It integrates and informs every aspect of the path into a cohesive, a collected, a noble way of being, a noble way of living. Then we can live the Eightfold Path profoundly and completely. We could say this another way. Maybe it would make more sense just to say that before realization, before the realization of the third noble truth, we could say we were practicing the path, but it's only after realization that we can say we are practicing the noble path. We can also understand the Eightfold Path as a training, as a relative practice, but it can also be understood as an expression of action beyond training, as the expression of the action of one who has already realized the end of suffering. In the Anguttara Nikaya, it says, there is action that is dark with dark result, which means harmful, and there is action that is bright with pleasant result. There is action that is both dark and light, with both pleasant and painful result, and there is action that is neither dark nor light, with neither dark nor light result. This is what leads to the end of Kama. This is the supramundane noble eightfold path.
So it's the action that is neither light nor dark, with neither dark nor light result, is said to be the expression of the noble eightfold path at the level of awakening, the supramundane level. Sometimes we can see the eight steps as kind of linear. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Starting with right view, ending with concentration. But maybe it's more um, often that it's working in a more integrated, spiraling, interdependent system. And there are some suttas, some discourses of the Buddha that present the fulfillment of each prior step as a necessary condition for the fulfillment of the next step. So in order to practice right, you know, noble right action, there has to be noble right intention and noble right view before it that precedes it. And so there are some teachings that give a very strict linear presentation, but there are other discourses in the sutta collections where there's a kind of a simultaneous intertwining of all of the factors or clusters of the factors that seem to group and inform each other and spiral together. Particularly, there's one interesting discourse where right effort, mindfulness, and view are defined through their interaction with every other step on the path. And so the entire path is described as an expression of the fulfillment of concentration at the end, which is the last one, that each step leads to the fulfillment of concentration, but each factor of the path is developed out of right effort, right mindfulness, and right view. So you have this cluster informing whatever the topic is they're talking about, leading to concentration. And then the topic changes, say, to right livelihood, but it's still the same cluster of right effort, mindfulness, view, that still leads to concentration. And it goes through the Eightfold Path in this kind of, of, of sequence. And I think it's interesting. It says in this discourse, thus these three states run and circle around each of the other path factors. And I think it's interesting to see you take a simple teaching like the Eightfold Path and see the different ways that the Buddha taught it, the different ways that he presented these teachings. It wasn't always just, and what is the Eightfold Path? It's right view, right thought, right speech. Or, what is right view? And then it goes through all the details of the understanding of causation and the understanding of the Four Noble Truths and the understanding of impermanence, etc. Yes, you can find all the lists you find on your papers were, were taken directly from suttas, but they weren't all in one sutta. He taught differently for different people. But nevertheless, because I was asked to speak about the Eightfold Path, I feel like I should try and get through all eight Usually when I teach, I pick short lists. I love lists, but you probably know I rarely go over five. So I'm going to have to speak kind of quick. So right view, samaditi is the Pali term. And from the Middle Link Discourse, it says, right view comes first. How does right view come first? One understands wrong view as wrong view and right view as right view. This is one's right view. It's short, it's sweet, it's clear. Maybe you want to know a little bit more, though. (laughs) So right view comes first. How do you view 
the world? What is your view? What is intrinsic to your vision of life that seems to inform each encounter that you have? Right view specifically considers how we conceive of actions and their consequences, the law of kama, and the role of self. Do we insert a sense of self? Does sense of this construction of self take a primary place? If so, then perhaps our worldview is really a worldview of delusion <laughs> circling around this concept that we are the center of the universe. So right view primarily is focused about getting out of that deluded view that I am the center of the universe and understanding that things arise due to causes and conditions, not because I want them to be a certain way, not because I have control over things. They arise due to causes and conditions. And we understand the causes and the conditions, the effects around suffering, which implies the Four Noble Truths. Right intention, or also translated as right thought, samasankapa. So our view, our attitude, our understanding, our perspective, these mold our thoughts. They mold the intentions that we bring to our actions. It says, from the, from the Samyutta Nikaya. What friend is right intention? The intention of renunciation, the intention of non-ill will, the intention of non-cruelty. This is called right intention. Basically, it's a clarity of our thought so that within our mind, we are oriented towards letting go, towards renunciation. We are oriented towards non-ill will, not non-hatred, non-cruelty. When we encounter any experience, we bring that thought to it. The quality of our mind is free from ill will, free from cruelty, and free from clinging, the grasping. So there's renunciation, non-ill will, and non-cruelty as the dominant intentions that we bring to experience. And with this kind of clear thought then we enter into any experience in a way that is more likely to lead to happiness and to peace and to reduce harm, suffering, contention, and conflict. From the Anguttara Nikaya, a wise person, one of great wisdom, does not intend harm to self, intend harm to others, or intend harm to both self and others. Thinking in this way, one intends benefit for self, benefit for others, benefit for both, and benefit for the world. Thus is one wise and of great wisdom. The intention that we bring to action is not always obvious. In fact, I think sometimes people get angry at each other because they didn't clearly perceive the intention of the other. Um, or misassume what the other person's intention was. Sometimes the same external action can be motivated by very, very different intentions. Maybe a, an extreme example might be that somebody could spank a child out of intention of caring and discipline, 
and somebody else could beat a child in abusive rage. And the intention is very, very different. Whether you support spanking at all, but that's the kind of idea. You can say something, somebody can correct somebody verbally out of a desire to humiliate them or out of a desire to help them correct a problem so that they can succeed. There are many different intentions and what somebody has as an intention that goes that speaks or acts out of isn't necessarily that the person who is engaged in that action will be able to determine it because they'll be seeing it through their own emotions, their own lenses. In Bhikkhu Bodhi's Abhidhamma study book, he says, A masochist may respond to physical pain with mental states rooted in greed and accompanied by joy, while a meditative monk may contemplate a decaying corpse with wholesome mind states accompanied by knowledge and joy. And I pulled out this quote just because our intentions, our attitudes, our thoughts affect the experience that we have. Somebody could look at a rotting corpse and contemplate that in one of the the mindfulness of the body exercises and not be disgusted by it, but actually use it as a contemplation to realize that we are all subject to death and there is nothing here to hang on to and use it as a spark for letting go, as an inspiration for release. And therefore it brings joy. It brings wisdom, knowledge, and joy. And somebody else could look at the same thing and be completely disgusted by it. Be angry, be fearful. So what we bring to experience isn't always obvious. The third aspect of this path is right speech, samavacha. And it doesn't matter what words we may speak. Our intentions come through. We are in communicating our intentions through what we speak. Sometimes there can be an underlying emotional tone that affects the communication. And many of the social intelligence studies show us that people respond more to the emotional tone of the speech than the actual words that are spoken. So the emotional energy that we bring to something seems to be communicated more strongly than the actual content. And they give the, they've done these studies where they have an employer give feedback to employees and give basically negative performance evaluations. But in two different modes. Some people, they gave this negative performance evaluation with a really upbeat, positive, loving attitude. And then with another group, they gave it in a very neutral, matter-of-fact way. Straightforward, abrupt, just matter-of-fact. And the reactions of the people receiving the information was totally different because the people who received it from the nice, pleasant speech one had a lot more positive experience, felt good about themselves afterwards, even though the content was basically the same. Shanti Deva said, he's an ancient Indian, a great Indian teacher from way, way back. 
Whenever I wish to move or to speak, first I shall examine my state of mind and firmly act in a suitable way. Whenever my mind becomes attached or angry, I shall not react, nor shall I speak. I shall remain mum and unmoved like a tree. I think we... In daily life practice as lay people, we give a lot of attention to right speech because it's where a lot of confusion, a lot of unnecessary suffering happens in our relationship. We could summarize the basic principle of right speech as to speak only what is true, timely, and useful. So what we're saying is true. We're choosing an appropriate time to speak it. And we're speaking it in a way that is useful. In a way that can be heard, in a way that can lead to something, some positive result. And it's contrasted to wrong speech, which is false speech, malicious speech, harsh speech, gossip. And as an aspect of the Noble Eightfold Path, right speech must be supported by right intention, right view, and right mindfulness, or it's not considered part of this Noble Eightfold Path. The nobility, the rightness, is brought not through communication skills, but the nobility of the path, the rightness, the completeness, the wholeness, and the use of speech as part of the awakened expression, comes about through its relationship to the whole path. Right action. Samakamanta. Right action, or the fulfillment of action, implies a clarity of virtue, and a virtue that manifests in the way that we act in what we do in our conduct. Specifically, it means not killing, not stealing, and not engaging in sexual abuse. And by implication, it implies acting in ways that are supportive, that are harmless, that are helpful. From the Middle Ink Discourses, and what friend is right action? Abstaining from killing living beings, abstaining from taking what is not given, and abstaining from misconduct in sensual pleasures, This is called right action. Simply by abstaining from these harmful actions, we might be able to bring our conduct into a relatively pure state. But to be considered the fulfillment of right action, we don't just follow the precepts, but we also have to have our action infused with right view, with right effort, with right mindfulness, with right intention. So our action then becomes a physical manifestation of the noble path. It becomes the way we enact the nobility of this path of awakening. The fifth factor is right livelihood, sama ajiva. These five trades, O monk, should not be taken up by a lay follower, trading in weapons, trading in human beings, trading in meat, trading in intoxicants, and trading in poisons. I don't know if any of you work in any of these trades, 
right livelihood does not mean that we all have to serve like the newest saint, Mother Teresa. We don't have to all be in the helping professions. We don't have to give up ordinary other jobs and go into nursing or counseling or hospice care work. Also, right livelihood does not imply that poverty is a virtue or better in any way than wealth. Instead, we're asked to look at our work, to look at how we sustain ourselves, to look at how we engage in the social economy and consider, is our engagement, is our work contributing to harm or to happiness in the world and in our communities? Have we brought, we could say, our spiritual values to our work? Have we brought our work into our spiritual lives? How does our engagement in work, which we most people spend more time working than they do meditating most days, how can our work continue to lead to the fulfillment of this path? Is there any way that our work, that our livelihood, that any issues around our livelihood prevent us from deepening our path of practice? The sixth is right effort, samavayama. Now, right effort can be summarized with the effort to avoid or to overcome and abandon unwholesome states and to develop and maintain wholesome states. And I often speak about right effort, of how we adjust the quality and the quantity of effort. But noble right effort relates directly to the effort to establish and to develop this noble eightfold path. The discourses in the Middle Link Discourses, Great 40, it says that right effort, again, is repeatedly described in relationship to every other aspect of that Eightfold Path. Because none of the, we don't develop right speech without right effort supporting it. We don't develop right intention without right effort supporting it. We don't develop right mindfulness, right concentration, right livelihood, right anything, right action without right effort supporting it. So right effort then becomes defined as or understood as the effort to abandon the wrong path and to enter upon the right path. And it is the effort that attains the noble eightfold path. Step seven is right mindfulness. Samasati. Mindfulness describes a quality of attention, an unbiased observing capacity of the mind that is receptive, that is present, that is clearly aware of what's actually happening. It includes the contemplation of the body, mindfulness of the body. It includes the contemplation of feelings, the contemplation of mental states, and the contemplation of the manifestations and functions and relationships, conditions that we're developing within the mind. It's, it's classically called mindfulness of dhammas, but it basically means what are we developing 
Are there hindrances? Are there awakening factors? And how does this whole path of mindfulness lead to awakening? What's important to understand is that sometimes when we hear about mindfulness, we're not really talking about mindfulness. Sometimes the way that mindfulness is used in in our contemporary culture, it's simply referring to a quality of attention which is different than what the Buddha taught as samasati. So it's not always mentioned as right mindfulness. All qualities of attention do not necessarily lead to the development of the path. And wrong mindfulness is not just an aspect of like bringing our attention to something in a mean and cruel way. There are many ways that mindfulness is discussed in the West now, that is separated from ethics, from liberation, and basically from the rest of the Eightfold Path. So we might find mindfulness presented merely as a therapeutic tool or as a method for improving performance or as a mental skill that one can enhance one's abilities in athletics or one can support one's endeavors in school or in work. Um, or just a useful aid to the various professional skill development, personal skill development, self-help, self-growth kinds of things that we engage in in our culture. Certainly, sustained mindful presence will create a feeling of calmness, a calm, steady attention, and a good feeling. It usually is accompanied by a pleasant feeling. But... This kind of clear attention or, and good feeling is not intrinsically liberating. It can be maybe like the kind of attention where, you know, my cat would, would sit by the hole for a very long time waiting for the, the little mole or the little gopher to come out. Very attentive, very, very attentive, really focused, seemingly quite happy. <laughs> Hours could stay there, very patient. Looks like it has a lot of, the cat has a lot of qualities. Sustained interest, not dull. There was both a relaxation and an alertness. All the things we talk about developing. But really, we're not meditating with the aspiration to be more like a cat. We can learn a lot from a cat, sure. But that's not what right mindfulness is about. Right mindfulness relies upon every other aspect of the Eightfold Path. So to enter into right mindfulness, it has to be supported by right view and right intention, by all the other aspects of the Eightfold Path. Of course, it makes sense that mindfulness has been a bit divorced from the Eightfold Path because to get grants, to get funding, to have these teachings available in hospitals, to have insurance pay for them, to have them in schools, to have them in corporations, to have them in non-religious settings, one has to take the Buddha out of it. And when you take the Buddha out of it, you take all the funny words out of it, like right and sama. And then you strip it down into something that can be taught very cleanly, very simply, and can kind of be catch on. You know? And the Noble Eightfold Path is way too long to kind of catch on. 
You know, you couldn't even tweet the Eightfold Path because you couldn't even remember all of them until you've been practicing for a while, right? So one thing, one path factor gets highlighted. So it makes sense. I mean, it makes sense. But we don't need to understand mindfulness as divorced from the Eightfold Path. We can reinform mindfulness with the whole Eightfold Path and reinfuse it with the power of ethics and generosity and honesty and compassion, the realizations of emptiness and liberation, and know that it's supported by every aspect of the path. We find within the the Buddhist world people asking the question and have been asking the question since I remember hearing it in the 80s, in the 1980s. Are we watering down the teachings? Are we choosing a mainstreaming of this very pivotable mindfulness is right at the center, right at the heart of this liberating practice? But are we taking the heart of the training and watering it down to make it more palatable? Or is there a way of holding that and sharing that understanding of mindfulness that maintains its liberating potential? Many of the teachers who teach mindfulness have a strong understanding of the Eightfold Path and have a much broader and deeper training themselves and practice themselves than necessarily the common therapeutic curriculum. But I think we can keep asking the question when we're practicing mindfulness is what is our aim? When I speak of liberation, what I mean is ending the causes of suffering, ending the attachments that keep greed, hate, and delusion festering and forming in our lives day after day. So we can, as we develop mindfulness and as we engage in a culture that is now beginning to embrace mindfulness more fully, we can value mindfulness, but we can value right mindfulness. And within our practice and within our communities, keep it informed by the whole path. Last factor of the Eightfold Path is right concentration, samasamadhi. From this discourse I've been reading quite a bit from in the Middle Eight Discourses. Unification of mind equipped with these seven factors is called noble right concentration with its supports and its requisites. So basically, right concentration is described now as the culmination of the path. It's the unification of the mind that is supported by all the other factors. And it explicitly says so in the very definition of what right concentration is. So again, we're not dealing simply with an attention, with just focusing, with just learning to concentrate on that spot or that dot or that thought or that feeling or that sensation. Right concentration is a unification of mind that is the culmination of right view, right intention, etc., If we consider the many things that require concentration in life, we'll know that many of them are not supported by right view, right intention, right action, right speech, right livelihood, etc. 
Yeah, target practice. The rifleman aimed very carefully at a target or a sniper is not necessarily practicing the Eightfold Path. An athletics, sometimes you get very concentrated when you're like skiing or doing something that requires, you know, you're really into the, the mind is unified, the body is, there's a sensitivity, and, and you're not like off thinking and the mind doesn't wander. If so, you'll probably kill yourself. But nevertheless, not ne- that's not necessarily right concentration. It's not informed by the whole path. We concentrate in various jobs. You know, an engineer who's working against the clock to try to solve a problem is going to be focused on the task. But again, that's not necessarily informed by the Eightfold Path. A craftsman, a violin maker who's carving the wood to build a violin is going to be very concentrated to do the fine work and to get it just, just right. A skilled craftsman but not necessarily right concentration. We all concentrate in our lives at home, in our activities at work, in our daily lives. We also experience views, intentions. We speak, we act, we earn a living in one way or another. We put forth effort. We have some degree of awareness. We have some degree of focus. But... Is it sama? Is it right? Is it the Noble Eightfold Path? It's not enough to just not do unwholesome things. I mean, babies, they're just born and they don't do unwholesome things. You know, they eat, they sleep, they poop. But they're not enlightened. You know, they're not practicing the path. It's not enough to just not do the unwholesome and every once in a while happened to do something wholesome. To be on the Noble Eightfold Path, we must know what is wholesome, what is unwholesome. What are the actions, the states, the intentions that lead to more suffering, the unwholesome, and lead to the end of suffering, the wholesome. What are their origins? What are their causes? And how can we practice for the cessation of the causes? How can we practice so that we can realize that third noble truth, the ending of the craving, which is the causes of suffering? This brings a kind of cumulative fulfillment, we could say, of the whole path. So when we look at the combination of the path factors and the integration of the whole path, we can consider it a path of fulfillment. The texts call it a noble path, a path of nobility. And it's this integration of all the path factors that describes the eightfold path as one beyond training. So we can realize the four noble truths through the practice of the Eightfold Path. They're not separate. They're fully integrated. We have a path of practice, and we have a path of realization. It's not just a code of conduct that we have to obey, and it's not just a list we have to memorize. It's not a doctrine that we have to believe. It's an actual, an extraordinary path that when we start to see the development of, of the components of action 
and mental attitude and mental development all combining. We'll get some hints and some understanding as to how not only does this lead to the letting go and the realization of the end of suffering, but it also is an expression of action post-realization. Do you have some comments, questions? Um, I was just saying that a lot of aha moments for me, like... Aha! Beautiful! (laughs) Aha! Beautiful. Yeah, yeah. It kind of makes sense all together. Makes a lot of sense, but I want to know more. Yeah, you know, the noble truths make... The four noble truths make a lot of sense. There is suffering. There are causes for it. And those causes are not just to blame the world for how it is. The causes that we deal with are the causes that lead to the attachment so that we engage in the world from a perspective of suffering. And there is an end to it and a way to end it. And when we see this, it's a brilliant system. It's a brilliant teaching. But it's not necessarily easy. Not everybody's ready to even hear the first noble truth. Sometimes people say, hear that the teachings, there is suffering, and they're out the door. You know, they don't necessarily want to see that. Uh, But when you see it, it's interesting. There's a beautiful quote where the Buddha said that the realization, the breakthrough to the Four Noble Truths, which is basically the full understanding of suffering and its causes and its end. Um, He says, the breakthrough to the Four Noble Truths leads, it's something about it leads to supreme happiness and joy. Thought of something after learning all this. It seems like you get a lot of benefit for yourself, but it's really hard to teach because when you do the teaching, it's almost like you're judging other people. I, I don't know how to put it, but it's really hard to oh, you mean teach that- in a way that is not have you know, and I'm not. The wholesome and the unwholesome language tends to sound judgmental. But there's a difference between judging other people or discerning the causes of suffering and seeing those in action. We always have to look to see, like if we're judgmental, then we're, there's an aversion there. There's a bit of anger and there's a separation of self-other in there. Whereas we can look and see that this action that somebody's doing is only going to lead to suffering. <laughs> and you know that, you don't, you know, in, it doesn't even have to be in the Dhamma. You know that. You've seen, you've talked with enough people in your life where you know that somebody is doing something and you know it's going to lead them t- to more suffering. So, uh, please, why don't you pass the mic? Well, just a quick comment on that. I think we're all so busy creating our own suffering that why worry about what somebody else is doing? Yeah. Like, I'm too busy trying to correct my own behavior to get involved in somebody else's. I think that's very wise. And in fact, the Buddha basically said the same thing. I think Jesus said the same thing too, more or less. Who can cast the first stone? Who can cast the first stone, you know? yeah. And the Buddha basically said that 
it basically the same thing that if you start judging others, there's, there's no end to it. <laughs> yeah. About um, right actions, what did the Buddha or his followers say about um, the controversy between um, vegetarianism and veganism? This is something that's meaningful in my life, so I was wondering. This was actually an issue that was explicitly discussed. So there are remembered conversations that are incorporated into the texts because there was a situation where the Buddha's cousin, who was a bit of a rival, a rival monk, I mean, I know they're not supposed to be so rivals, but a rival monk, (laughs) basically challenged the Buddha to institute vegetarianism and to prohibit the monastics from consuming meat. And the Buddha said, did, did not agree to it. He said they can accept what is offered. And the practice of vegetarianism is considered one of the optional austerity practices. Just like one can walk barefoot or sleep sitting up or fast for periods of time or do various kinds of mild discomfort or mild renunciation sorts of practices. So the Buddha put vegetarianism in that category but did not institute it as a rule. He was not seeing it as a necessary way of not causing harm. You know, like he wasn't putting it in relation to the precept of not killing. The monks couldn't kill their own food and they couldn't eat meat that was specifically killed for them if they knew that it was killed for them. If they knew that because they went to that house that somebody went and killed a pig in order to serve it to them. They could not accept that meat because they couldn't be the cause for the killing of it. But if the family was eating meat and they were going to kill the pig anyway (laughs) and they offered some to the monk, the monk could very happily and very simply accept it and eat it. Is veganism a new development? There's no Buddhist roots whatsoever for either vegetarian or vegan. I think it's definitely more contemporary and for other reasons. Not, it's not a historical. The issue in Buddhism comes when people misunderstand the vegetarianism component as being a breach of the killing precept. And it's really not positioned that way in Buddhism. There's some good value to that too. I think Buddha was very wise because had he required vegetarianism, there would be many places in the world, basically like many places in the mountains in Tibet and Mongolia, which are Buddhist countries, you can't survive on vegetarian food because there are no vegetables. <laughs> you know, that, those are, there's, and also some of the food issues were related to castes. Certain castes would eat differently. So if he specified what they could eat, then they would not be able to walk through the village and just accept anything into their bowl from anybody 
and be a, what's called a field of merit for the world to just accept whatever was offered and to eat it. Because then what if, a, if somebody was from a caste that ate meat and then they gave them the leftovers, you know, that was cooked in meat or even if it was some vegetable that might have some meat in it because they often would get leftovers in the alms round. So that's why they would be, they could, they could eat it, but they, would, they were just prohibited from taking food that was killed for them particularly. And, and then that enabled them to really practice more as, you know, renunciation. The reason I was experimenting with veganism for a while is that I saw a TV show about um, a dairy cow that was giving birth, and they immediately took the, 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 uh, the uh, infant away from its mother, and the mother was very, very upset yeah. because the... They were they were planning to slaughter the the um, the child for food. Mm-hmm. You know, you know that. But I, all I knew was that they were taking her, her her child away from her. You know, I suppose that's what she. <laughs> I don't can't read their mind. But anyway, um, so but I, I think it's different in India or used to be different in India because they didn't. It's not that they domesticated cows so much. It's just that they. Let them roam freely, and they fed them, basically, and they so they got the milk from them. They were owned, though they each had their own house. Yeah, right. Yeah, I guess yeah. that's right. They yeah, were they but, were very valuable. But very, they, didn't, very valuable. they didn't they didn't kill the infants, you know, the the babies. So. Yeah. So I think it's it's a little bit easier, more ethical, perhaps, to be a vegetarian in in India than it is maybe in this country. I'm not sure. I was confused about that. Yeah. Well, it just passed 9 o'clock, so I think we should wind up. I'll look forward to seeing you next week. I love the the deepening practice times when we get to sit and walk and practice a little bit more uh, meditation together. So um, I look forward to it always. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.